You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Over the years, some have inquired, well, why haven't we conducted a commemoration service, Rabbi Joel, for Yeshua's resurrection three days following the Passover? And so that discussion from a Messianic Jewish perspective is much different than what is typically discussed uh, in the Christian community. And so let's begin that discussion this morning, Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, Let's begin reading in verse 9 this morning. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, and tell them, When you have come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you are to bring the Omer of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen, to the priest. He is to wave the Omer before Adonai to be accepted for you on the morrow or on the day after the Shabbat. The Kohen is to wave it. Verse 15, you are then to count from the morrow, the day after the Shabbat, from the day that you brought the Omer of the wave offering, seven complete Shabbatot, seven complete Sabbaths, until the day after the seventh Sabbath, Shabbat, you are to count 50 days, and then present a new grain offering to Adonai. So I've titled this message, On the Heels of Passover, because it comes on the heels of Passover during the seven days of unleavened bread, this day, mentioned in verses 9, 10, and 11, is a, in a sense, a miniature appointed time within a larger appointed time, always overlooked in the Jewish community, most certainly overlooked in the Christian community. So on this day, biblically, the Bible tells us that Israel was to bring an Omer Reshit Ketzirchem, a sheaf, a bundle of grain stalks of the first of the harvest, to the priest, to the Kohen, because it was the first harvest of springtime. And so as acknowledgement for God's provision for harvest and for rain, the Israelites were to participate in this ceremony of the first grain of the barley harvest in the presence of the Lord. The Reshit Ketzirchem, the first of the harvest, it was an unleavened fruit, standing barley, uh, cut down freshly from, by a sickle. And so the Bible tells us here this harvest would continue on for seven weeks as the other crops and the other fruits began to ripen. And so as each of the fruits would ripen, we find historically the first of each type would not be eaten, but the farmer instead would tie a ribbon around the branch of the fruit tree, signifying that these were bikurim, these were the first fruits. A wave offering was then presented with these barley sheaves, and only that were they at liberty then to make use of the harvest for themselves. And so it was a very clear lesson historically, agriculturally, that if God had been faithful to bless us with this early spring harvest, he will most certainly provide the harvest coming in late summer. I believe we can even spiritualize that to say God has blessed us with an early harvest of Jewish believers. He is certainly going to fulfill that with a greater latter-day harvest of Jewish believers too. So each year, our purpose in doing so, in counting the Omer, the ripening of these first fruits, is to draw closer to God 
and to be obedient to his word. The days of the Omer count actually calendar-wise provide this natural opportunity, this timely opportunity to think about our journeys and to set us in the habit of counting our days, considering our paths, making goals about our destinations. And we should expect, honestly, that our faith level would arise during these 50 days in anticipation of what God is doing and will do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So counting the Omer, it's an exercise of spiritual discipline, and according to Jewish tradition, the counting is done in a prescribed manner. After the evening prayers, a blessing is recited, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, Asher Sivanu Al Svirat HaOmer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to do this, to count the Omer, count the days of the Omer. And so typically this formal counting every night is followed by a recitation of a particular psalm. You can turn with me there to Psalm chapter 67 this morning. Psalm 67 is recited at this time because it is composed of exactly... 49 Hebrew words which correspond, again, as we read, to the 49 days of the counting of this Omer. So this psalm is seasonally appropriate because of the harvest motif in this psalm. And so it's spiritually appropriate as well because it makes clearly speaking about here in the psalm of God's salvation, prophetically looking forward to Yeshua being known over all the earth. Let's read it. For the music director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, so that your way may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples fairly and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its harvest. God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth will fear him. Now, we see in hindsight the traditional observance of this festival with the unleavened barley sheaves being waved before the Lord and the grain that had come from the earth now being lifted up for everyone to see. And I believe this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the Messiah. Yeshua actually himself alluded to his resurrection in similar like terms. We find this in Yochanan, John's Good News account, chapter 12. Then Yeshua answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen, amen, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat, in this case, falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it produces much fruit. As I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. And so by divine design, the rituals of offering this barley omer in the temple coincided with the death and the resurrection of Yeshua. You see, on the same day, this 
that we've been reading about on the same day on the calendar, we know that Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, and his associates tried Yeshua. Three members of the Sanhedrin that day went out to a barley field not far from Jerusalem, And on that same day that the Romans bound and crucified Yeshua, the members from the Sanhedrin bound up the standing barley into bundles while it was still attached to the ground so that it would be easier as they returned later after the Shabbat to reap. Saturday night that year, they returned to the barley field to harvest approximately six and a half gallons from the sheaves that they had prepared earlier. For you see, the Torah prohibited using or eating any produce from the New Year's cereal crops until the priesthood would offer to the Lord the first of this new grain. That same night, the priests in the temple roasted and threshed and ground this barley into flour. All night they were doing that. All night they were preparing it. And that same night, Saturday night, Yeshua left the tomb. Sunday morning, while the women discovered the empty tomb, the high priest was busy again making, mixing rather, this barley flour with frankincense and oil to prepare it for this bread offering. The priest would mix the flour into dough with olive oil and incense. And Caiaphas then would take a batch of unleavened bread in hand and, and he waved it before the Lord as this first fruits wave offering. And then the morning sacrifice would come and the additional Passover sacrifices would be done. And Caiaphas would offer a portion of this grain offering on the altar as a memorial portion, reminding them of the eternal lesson of the manna. The priest then would bake the remainder of the dough into loaves of unleavened bread, barley bread, to be shared among themselves as priests. And then Caiaphas would conclude this ceremony by sacrificing a single male lamb as a burnt offering to accompany this new grain. And so that day began the 50-day count toward Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Now, as we fast forward historically from that day, as Rav Shaul or Paul taught the believers in Corinth about the Messiah's resurrection, he makes an amazing connection to this biblical holy day of Reshit, Kitzirchem, the first of the harvest, that holy day. And he writes about it to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, chapter 15. And we pick it up in verse 20. He says, But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the Bikurim, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also has come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah will all be made alive, but each in its own order. Messiah, the Bikurim, the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Messiah. How many of you know Shaul was extremely familiar with all the temple services and sacrifices? So when he says here, Bikurim, when he says here, first fruits, you can bet, you can be sure, he's alluding to this festival ordained as we read in Torah. A study of this letter also will tell you that he writes this letter between Passover and Shavuot as well. So what was he trying to get across to us here? Well, I believe that Paul was saying that it was not merely that Yeshua was the first to rise bodily from the grave, but by so doing, he is the direct fulfillment of this early first fruits resurrected on the appointed day 
on God's calendar. Others, you know, had been raised from the dead. We've read about them before, only to die again, right? The widow's son and the the day of Elijah, Lazarus had done that, only to die again. Jairus' daughter, same thing. But Yeshua is uniquely the first fruits in that he died, as Paul says here, he rose and he is alive forever. In anticipation of believers who have fallen asleep, or maybe that they're alive, but who are going to be raised with him forever at his second coming. Yeshua is the Bikurim. He is the first fruits, the guarantee, isn't he? He is the seal. He is the assurance that we get resurrected too. My friends, Yeshua's resurrection makes the counting of the Omer for us over these next 40 plus days a season of joy, a season of special significance. For us as his Talmudim, his disciples, it is a time to not just on one day, but for the next 40 some days, remember his resurrection. You see, all of his post-resurrection appearances took place during these 40 days, the first 40 days anyway, right? And on that 40th day of the Omer, what happened? He leads his disciples on a hill out to the Mount of Olives. They saw him ascend to heaven. But before he did that, he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait there, right, for the promise of the Father. What's that promise? Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in power. Stay tuned for the fulfillment of that on the biblical calendar which falls this year on June the 4th and the 5th. So let's transition to another aspect of this. Uh, for us as Messianic Jews, for Christians also, with the, along with what we did last weekend, the memorial of the plague of the firstborn and the exodus from Egypt, we commemorated that. The Seder remembers Yeshua's last Seder, right? We talked about the, from the trilogy Haggadah. We looked at Yeshua's last Seder with his disciples, and we did the Seder in remembrance of him as he instructed. And we went over his words. We rehearsed his words. We didn't get an opportunity, obviously, to look at all of his words. And so we want to look at the rest of his words today. Luke chapter 22, go with me there. In verse 14, when the hour came, Yeshua reclined at table and the emissaries with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will never eat it again until it is, I will never eat it again until it is fulfilled. Underline that. It is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, someday in the future, the Bible tells us here, we're going to recline at a Seder meal with the resurrected Yeshua. And so today, 2022, we have a a sliver, we have a partial understanding, don't we, of Passover due to what we went through last weekend, the exodus from Egypt. And so for us as Messianics, that partial level of comprehension is then greatly enhanced. It's greatly increased due to our rescue on, on our behalf by Yeshua HaMashiach. But it says here that in God's kingdom, what? The full revelation of Passover will be revealed to us, his children. And it won't take Jonathan Kahn to tell us about what the mystery means. We're all going to know it. <laughs> Love Jonathan. But it's, it's going to be given its full meaning. It's going to be fulfilled. 
Yeshua spoke of this great feast that is to take place in the Messianic era. He alludes to it when he talks to those who are going to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that going to be a great discussion? Or reclining with Abraham. Hey, how did that work? You know, how did the Messianic banquet is called the wedding feast of the Lamb? Now, personally, I believe that part of this full revelation that's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Listen, we're walking in the kingdom in a certain sense. I believe that's, that the full revelation has already started to break through prior to its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Here's one example, and I give this to you some years, and it's extremely controversial. So I want you to take a deep breath and breathe it out and saying, this is controversial. I'm not saying it's gospel. I'm not saying, but it's what I personally am led to believe from the scriptures. But I'm open to other interpretations. And that is, have you ever thought, and we talked about this a year ago, why the Messiah Yeshua was crucified at a place that the Bible calls Golgotha, right? How did the site of the crucifixion get that name? Well, we know that Yeshua, the Messiah, was of the lineage of David, right? Luke chapter 3, Mark, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogies show that clearly to us. But you remember what happens when David goes after Goliath. He defeats him. He cuts off his head. But what did he do with his head? Well, he brings it, 1 Samuel 17 tells us, to Jerusalem, and he buries it. According to tradition, he buries it outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem, by tradition. You see, our people would never have permitted the Gentile giant's head to be buried inside the city walls. Goliath's full name was Goliath of Gath. Golgotha is a variant of that, right? Golgotha, it's Aramaic actually, meaning skull, became known as the place of the burial of Goliath's skull. So when David does that, we can speculate that Adonai was beginning to fulfill prophecy that he spoke to the serpent at the very beginning when he said that he was going to put enmity between your seed, whose seed? The serpent, Satan's seed, and her seed, capital S, Eve's seed, the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, it's the first Messianic prophecy. And so in terms of beginning to fulfill prophecy, we know that there was a race of supernatural beings, right? Possibly descendants from fallen angels that Adonai bound from having relations with women. The Nephilim, the giants, maybe having to do with, of course, their size, but maybe their ferocity. We find that in Genesis 6 and and Yehuda in the New Covenant, chapter 1. But the Anakites, another name that's also translated as giants, of which the Philistine Goliath supposedly was a descendant of, an Anakite, were being pit then, if you will, against David. So we could say that the Genesis 3.15 prophecy is talking about a demonic seed, the Anakim, and a spiritual seed, the offspring of David, now, we know Yeshua's father was the same father as Adam's father, and he's actually referred to like that as the second Adam. But my friends, we know that God watches over every little line in his word to perform it, every jot, every tittle, every yud, every makif to fulfill it. So David brings the skull, if you're following, of the seed of Satan, the Anakim, Goliath, to the place 
Golgotha buries it. Now here's where it gets controversial too, and it's quite possible that it was at the heel of Yeshua, that prophecy, Genesis 3.15, speaking of the heel, that the serpent shall what? Bruise Messiah's heel right where the execution stake was placed. Now that could not happen at the traditional site of the crucifixion, very controversial as well, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location, which is clearly inside of the city walls. But that site today is venerated by most of Christianity as Golgotha, the hill of Calvary, Latin for place of a skull. And it's due in large part, though, to other scholars who assert that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location, if you've been there and visited, could have been outside the walls. But recent archaeological opinion positions the present Damascus Gate at the northern boundary of Jerusalem in the 30s of the Common Era, making the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location inside the city walls. And so there are some scriptures, I believe, from the Tanakh that intimate that the outside the walls Golgotha location, if you're with me anyway, adjacent to the garden tomb, is the correct location for the crucifixion. I'm not being dogmatic about it. But I personally believe that's the location. There were some theologians, notably some Scottish theologians, Andrew Benar, Otto Thenius, began to put these things forward even 35 years before General Gordon did. He was an incredible Bible student as well as a notable British soldier. In 1882, he put this theory together of Golgotha being the garden tomb location, even became convinced that the outside-the-walls Golgotha site, again, adjacent to the garden tomb, was a likely place for the execution of Yeshua. So let's look at one of those passages in the Torah today. Why would that make sense? Why would that location make sense? Well, Leviticus chapter 10, speaking of the sacrifices, we find in verse 10 of Levit excuse me, Leviticus chapter 1, rather, verse 10, if the sacrifice is from the flock, speaking of all the different offerings that in the prior, prior verses, from the sheep or from the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. He is to slaughter it on the north side of the altar before Adonai. The place of a skull, Golgotha, at the garden tomb at Gordon's Calvary location is north side of the city, the altar. Outside of Damascus Gate is northward. The traditional side of the Holy Sepulchre location is not. Lev Leviticus chapter 4.12 speaks about the sin offering as well being taken outside the camp, outside the city. Now, back to the Messianic banquet. The fulfillment of the Passover Seder that Yeshua was going to be participating in with his heavenly father, Yeshua says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son. So it makes Yeshua the bridegroom who comes to the feast and takes those who are, quote, ready in with him to the wedding feast. In fact, the concept of a coming messianic banquet is not foreign to us as a Jewish people. Remember, these are all the things that I think are starting to be unraveled as the fulfillment of this Passover starting to even hit the earth. Isaiah 25, 6, speaking of this messianic banquet in verse 6, Isaiah 25, On this mountain, Adonai, Tzavah, the Lord of hosts, 
will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. Victor Nager will be catering it. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got to wipe that out in my Bible. That's not scripture. A banquet of aged wine, of rich food, of choice marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Ancient Jewish legend has speculated about the details of this feast for thousands of years. Our sages imagined that in the future, God is going to prepare a feast for the righteous in the Garden of Eden. And he's going to recline with them at the table. These are in the rabbinic documents, Numbers Rabbah 13.2. They go on to say the main course. How many of you want to know what the main course might be? Might be, okay. It might be the beast, the meat of the beasts, Leviathan, giant sea monster, Job 41.1, and behemoth, a giant ox, Job 40.15. Now it's possible that that might be the meat along with wine that has been preserved in its grapes since the six days of creation. Now again, Numbers Rabbah, it's not scripture. I'm not putting forth a doctrine. That's some good eating, folks. They speak of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being present at the table, along with all the righteous resurrected. And at the banquet, Adonai will at that point then crown King Messiah. The Talmud says at the end of the meal, no one will be found worthy to say grace after meals except for the Messiah, who will take four cups in his hands and say the blessings. So for the past several years, based on some of those rabbinic documents... It's been reported in Jerusalem that Hasidic rabbis, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, have taken part in what they call a Siudat Mashiach, the Messiah's Supper, at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of these Hasidic rabbis, Rabbi Amichai Ivan Israel, has stated, quote, the main goal of the Messiah's Supper is to try and internalize the issue of the coming of Messiah as real, not just a myth and not a fairy tale. This is why we eat and drink while discussing this issue to symbolize that it is real and it could be digested. And so this Siudat Moshiach, this Messiah's Supper, was instituted in the 17th century by the Hasidic movement, by its founder, Rabbi Eliezer, uh, Israel ben Eliezer, who taught that eating the Messiah's Supper is a way, quote, to translate intangible faith into tangible action. Isn't that what Messiah's Supper means to us as well? Amen. So during this Hasidic Messiah's Supper takes place, the, the Haftorah portion of Scripture that is read on this day all throughout the world. On the last day of Passover, that's Isaiah 10, verse 32 to chapter 12, verse 6. In that window of Scripture, it gives the day a strong associa messianic association. The reading in that passage is replete with prophecies that reveal the Messiah, that reveal the Messianic age. For example, the scheduled reading today contains famous prophecies such as this one, quote, A shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from its roots. As well as, quote, A wolf will live with a sheep. And, quote, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. That's in the Haftorah portion that our people are reading on this day all over the world and that is read at the Messiah's Supper in this Hasidic tradition. These prophecies, they fuel messianic expectation that of the, on the final day of Passover. And so these ultra-Orthodox believe that God grants revelations 
about Messiah on the last day of unleavened bread. And so the Messiah's Supper then is to be a rehearsal and a foretaste of the great messianic banquet in the future. And so this took place last night in Jerusalem. And I believe there's coming a day when the veil is going to be lifted from these Hasidim. And they're going to see this. They're going to see Yeshua in this supper. So the seventh day of Passover, a feast of unleavened bread, is called Acharon Shel Pesach, which means the last day of Passover. I'm thankful that's the last day. Like I said, I, I love losing weight. But man, for a pastrami on rye right now, oh my goodness. Like the first day of the festival that began last Friday night. The last day is also a high Sabbath. It is. Exodus 12, verse 16 says it is. The first day is to be a holy assembly for you as well as the seventh day. No manner of work is to be done on these days except what is to be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. Jewish tradition observes this last day as the anniversary, interestingly enough, of the crossing of the Red Sea. And the Torah reading for the seventh day of Passover contains the story of the crossing at the sea and the song at the sea. And although the entire festival of Passover, which includes unleavened bread, is known as the season of our freedom, Zman Cherutenu, the Israelites, we know they didn't obtain final freedom until the last day, right? When God reveals his mighty power at the sea, splits it, rescues his people, and the Egyptians drowned. The Jewish sages tell us that the common Israelite, quote, maidservant saw at the splitting of the sea what Isaiah and Ezekiel tell, uh, and, all, and all the prophets never saw. So it reminds us even of when Yeshua told his disciples, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because you hear. But I tell you, many a prophet and Sadiq longed to see what you were seeing and did not see and to hear what you were hearing and done, did not hear. And so... Just as the escape from Egypt that we commemorated last Saturday evening was not complete until we crossed the Red Sea, the last day of Passover is the goal. It's the spiritual goal of the entire festival. For as followers of Yeshua, the crossing at the Red Sea parallels, in a sense, the joy of Yeshua's resurrection and the great hope of the second coming of the Messiah. April, if you would uh, come forth and help me a little bit here. During this feast of Passover and unleavened bread, it is appropriate again to partake of the Messiah's Supper. Messiah's uh, Yizkor, remembrance. Some have called it Shulchan Adonai, table of the Lord. Christian world calls it what? Communion. Communion is just really a synonym, folks, for fellowship. And it means a gathering of a community to celebrate the sacrifice of the Messiah and the inauguration of the new covenant. As a Messianic Jewish community here, we know this ceremony was never to be stripped of its Passover attributes, which it was very early on, even probably during the reign of Hadrian in that early 2nd century, who hated the Jewish people. So I, I want this year, just for a few minutes, to place ourselves back in time 
You can just hold that, guys and gals. I want us to maybe close our eyes. I'm going to bring us back to that moment in time for us to be a fly on the wall, as it were, at Yeshua's last Seder and when he inaugurated this ordinance. At Yeshua's bidding, Benjamin uncovered the roasted lamb, revealing it for the first time. The moment had arrived for the Pesach feast to begin. The lamb was cooked to a crispy brown. Surrounded by delicious gravy, it was beautifully presented. This freshly prepared sacrifice, still warm from the hearth, sent out a pleasing aroma. As prescribed by Moses in the scroll of Exodus, the entire animal had been cooked. Nothing was wasted. None of its bones were broken, as this would have disqualified the lamb for consumption. It had to be unblemished in pure sacrifice unto God. All ate together, using their fingers, reminiscent of their reclining posture, just as in Egypt. Each of the Talmudim was buried deep in thought. Unlike other Passover celebrations, which were festive, this one was solemn. And everyone had been served, after everyone had been served, a share of the main course was given to John, Mark, and Benjamin. Discreetly, they joined the three women in the kitchen below, where the Hosts might enjoy their own ceremonial supper. When the meal was over, Benjamin and John Mark returned to clear the table. They found the atmosphere of the upper room strangely hushed. Looking at Yeshua, John Mark could see his turmoil. Everyone present sensed it. A feeling of dark foreboding came over the group. Something inexplicable was about to take place. Yeshua stood looked at the Talmudim, lifted his goblet, and prayed. Once more, he reached into the basket and took the unleavened bread. He looked to the heavens, gave thanks, and broke it. Keeping a piece for himself, he passed the remaining portion to the Talmudim for them to perform the same task. Everyone was surprised. This was entirely unorthodox. At Passover, once the meal was finished, nothing else was to be consumed except for the two last cups of wine. Uncomfortably, the Talmudim complied. Each followed Yeshua's example and broke off a section of matzah, then awaited further instructions. When each had received his share, he looked upon them and repeated the blessing for unleavened bread. Baruch atah Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by his commandments to eat unleavened bread. This was a blessing similar to the one Yeshua had made earlier in the meal, except this time Yeshua added a new declaration. This is my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. The Talmudim were astounded. The only body offered in a Passover supper was that of a lamb. How could unleavened bread represent Yeshua's body? They looked at Yeshua. His eyes were cast upward as he sought the Father's face. They turned to Peter, wondering what his response would be. Peter shook his head in dismay and respectfully ate the unleavened bread. The others followed Peter's lead but remained puzzled. Yeshua circled to the other side of the table. He stopped at Elijah's empty seat. 
The man of God lifted Elijah's serving of wine. It was the third for the third cup of wine, the cup of redemption. This cup symbolized the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver his people from oppression. Everybody could not help but notice that Yeshua chose Eliyahu's cup for this purpose. How unusual. The rabbi prayed again. Then glancing around the table, he caught the eyes of each of his disciples. His next statement would completely unhinge the minds of his friends. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Several of the men cringed under the weight of his words. Bewilderment covered their faces. Yeshua raised the goblet and took a swallow. Then he passed it to his followers. John Mark considered this incredible disclosure. He pondered the mystery he now confronted. Was Yeshua saying that this wine symbolized his own blood? All knew that the wine was not his actual blood, but Yeshua was now telling them that he would shed his own blood on their behalf. Every Israelite had been taught about blood. One of God's cardinal rules was not to drink blood under any circumstances. The very idea was sacrilegious. Blood represented life itself. What did Yeshua mean by giving his body and shedding his blood? John Mark's mind wrestled with these issues. He thought to himself, when a sacrifice is offered, its blood is drained and then splashed against the altar. Only a Levitical priest is qualified to perform this sacrificial ritual except at Passover. For this specific sacrifice alone, the head of each Jewish household is personally responsible for pouring the blood on the family altar where its lamb is sacrificed. Certainly as a rabbi, Yeshua knew all this better than any. But what of this new covenant he was proclaiming? Just minutes before, as the story of Exodus was retold, all were reminded that God alone could make a covenant and fulfill its requirements. John Mark continued his internal dialogue. All these men had witnessed Yeshua's signs and wonders. They had heard him challenge the legalism of the Pharisees. They had seen him confront the deception of the Sadducees. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. They had even seen him walk on water in the midst of the sea. There was no end to his miracles, but drinking blood, especially Yeshua's own blood, this reached outside all boundaries of decency. It sounded like heresy or some pagan ritual. And John Mark read the sadness on Yeshua's face. At first, the Talmudim just looked down. Then one by one, one by one, they looked up at the rabbi. They were more flustered than ever. True, their understanding of him was incomplete, but they trusted him. They'd all followed him for years. And no matter what anyone had said about Yeshua, they knew how much he loved them. And they knew that he would never dishonor them or disobey the law. Then John Mark's heart was touched with a sudden revelation. Of course, the sacrificial blood, the shed blood of the sacrifice symbolizes the atoning price of sin. He looked around the room. Everyone at the table was contemplating Yeshua's meaning. John Mark could see the searching in their eyes. Could it be... John Mark became very clear-headed. Yeshua was challenging them to see a great truth. Yes, he was revealing a new promise, one written in his own blood. This was shocking if it was true. The goblet passed from hand to hand and was lifted up to the lips of every one of the disciples. 
Each of them drank from the cup, and with, when all had finished, Yeshua accepted the empty vessel and raised it to God. Yeshua took a deep breath. Sorrow was written upon his face. Closing his eyes, he bowed his head in prayer. Finally, he smiled and said, let us sing praises to God. The second half of the Hallel, a selection of King David's psalms was sung. Yeshua and the disciples joyfully declared the wondrous works of God. Their words filled that chamber. And eventually the last notes of the closing psalm reverberated in the rafters. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a depiction of what may have went down that Seder. That ordinance that Yeshua inaugurated at that last Seder, we are participating as well nearly 2,000 years later on this morning. Rav Shaul said this cup of blessing over which we make the blessing isn't it a sharing in the bloody sacrificial death of the Messiah? The bread we break, he said, isn't it a sharing in the body of the Messiah? The word in Greek, it's interesting, sharing is koinonia, which means participation in or participation with. Maybe I'll grab a piece too. Thanks, Jeff. And that says to me in that word that in some way, it's a miraculous way, when we drink the cup and when we eat the unleavened bread, we participate in, we participate with the shed blood and broken body of the Messiah that day on the tree of sacrifice. Paul goes on to state, quote, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So when we do this, when we partake of the unleavened bread in the cup, we're telling the world, what are we telling the world? We're telling the world, Yeshua is returning. He's coming back. Yeshua come. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's a powerful way as a community to call us together to proclaim this core message of the good news and to experience not only the intimate presence of the Messiah, but I believe his healing presence as well. Now it goes without saying from the scriptures that we are encouraged to examine our consciences right now before eating the unleavened bread and drinking from the cup. And so the scriptures record the distribution as the ushers have done of the unleavened bread to the disciples at the table. And he made the blessing. And again, as I'm going to say it again, this is my body, Yeshua said, being given for you. Do this in memory of me. Now, when he said that, 
it all, as it did to John Mark and this fictional character Benjamin here, it all made sense to them who the year before he said that possibly even his Passover was arriving, they heard him say these hard, seemingly hard and difficult and confusing words. He said, Anihu lechem hachayim. I am the bread which is life. But the bread that comes down from heaven is such that a person may eat it and not die. He said, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Furthermore, the bread that I will give, he said, is my own flesh, and I will give it for the life of the world. A preview, an illustration, a confirmation of the plans and purposes of his father to present a sacrifice that was going to redeem all people for all time to himself one year later, even maybe less. And so please join me again in a blessing over the unleavened bread, the matzah. Boruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth grain from the earth. Amen. That may be the last piece of unleavened bread we eat during Passover. <laughs> and likewise, Yeshua took a cup of, of wine. For those online, this is grape juice, by the way, just saying. But... And he made the blessing. And he gave it to his disciples and he said this, All of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant. My blood shed on behalf of many so that they might have their sins forgiven. And so Yeshua here associated his imminent sacrificial death with the redemptive blood of the Passover lamb. Please join me in this blessing. Boruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Borei Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Please join me in a closing word of prayer, and then I'm going to invite up a special guest. Abba, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, Lord, as you remember, we remember your son Yeshua, before becoming our Passover lamb. Lord, you told us to remember your body broken for us. Thank you for the life you gave because you love us so incredibly much. Your son was wrapped, he was buried. A ransom price was paid, and then he rose from the dead. <laughs> Blessed be your holy name. And Lord, as we have shared this bread and this cup, we thank you for your shalom and your everlasting life, which you gave to us freely. We hereby join ourselves to the master, Yeshua, the Messiah, the righteous one, who is the bread of life and the true light. He is the source of eternal salvation for all those who would hear him. 
And like a branch remains in a vine, so we may, Lord, remain in him, in you. Just as Yeshua remained in the Father and the Father in him, in order that they might remain in us. May the grace of the Master, Yeshua HaMashiach, the love of you, our Father, and the fellowship of Ruach Kodesh abound to us. And let us say, Amen. God told Moses to tell Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel. I so appreciate that. We're to walk in faith and not fear. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. And all of us who are with him said, Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shavuotov. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>